verses 1 through 14. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come, up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this fall, we are journeying through the book of Revelation, and Revelation is a book that uses all kinds of images and symbols to tell the story of everything, the story of good and evil, God and Satan, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of the world. It was written by a pastor named John to churches that were being persecuted by the Roman Empire. Last week, we did a big flyover over a huge section of the book, chapters 6 through 16, and and there are two things happening in this section simultaneously. One, John shows us that God is going to judge the earth and destroy evil. Why? So that he can establish his perfect kingdom on the earth where justice flows like rivers and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
That is God's purpose for history. For creation, he wants to end all violence and sickness and suffering and death and make all things new. Also throughout these chapters, God's judgment is interrupted at various times by these different interludes. There are ten of them. And the purpose of the interludes is to encourage and guide the church to remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of Babylon. Today we're in chapter 11, which is one of those interludes, and it's a chapter that seeks to answer an important question. What are Jesus' followers to do in the crunch of overlapping kingdoms? When the kingdom of heaven is broken in on the kingdoms of this world and both exist simultaneously, what are we to do? Most scholars agree that chapter 11 is the most difficult chapter in the entire book to interpret, so we have our work cut out for us this morning. It is filled with strange symbols and numbers, but they are not a code to be cracked. Rather, they are hyperlinks to the Hebrew scriptures. So our task is not to come up with a new creative interpretation that suits us, but to follow the hyperlinks, to go to their source, to see where these symbols come from, and that's exactly what we're going to do. So first we're going to follow the hyperlinks, then we're going to step back, and we're going to ask what message is John trying to convey to the churches through these symbols, and then we'll talk about what this means for us. So let's geek out together for a few minutes, shall we? Uh, if, If you have your Bible, I encourage you to have Revelation 11 open in front of you. If not, then have your bulletin open in front of you so that you can follow along with the text. In verse 1, John writes, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. This is not a literal temple. The literal temple in Jerusalem was destroyed some 20 years before John wrote this. In the New Testament, the temple almost always refers to people, to people who are in Christ. So God says, take this rod and measure the temple. This is a hyperlink to Zechariah chapter 2. Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I asked, where are you going? And he answered me, to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. Why? Well, verse 5 tells us, I myself, God speaking, will be a fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. So God is going to protect the temple. But listen, John says, measure the temple, but not the courtyard. The courtyard was where the Gentiles could go, those who were not part of the family of God. What is John saying? He's saying our worship is protected, but our witness is not. Following Jesus in the world can be dangerous. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Well, 1,260 days is 42 months. It's three and a half years. 42 is a bizarrely prominent number in the Bible. Uh, There were 42 stages in Israel's journey from Egypt to the promised land. 42 months without rain when Elijah called the nation to repent. 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus. Twice the prophet Daniel says that Israel will be oppressed for 42 months. 
In chapter 12 of Revelation, the dragon pursues the woman who gave birth to the Messiah for 42 months. 42 is a symbol for waiting under duress. It is the not yet. It is the crunch between two kingdoms. It is the dangerous in-between. The two witnesses, John says, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. This is a hyperlink to Zechariah 4. Now we're really going to geek out. Are you ready? So Zechariah was a prophet when Israel returned from exile. He had some really strange dreams, which he wrote down. And one of those dreams was about two olive trees that provided oil for a lamp, which represented God's watchful presence over Israel. And the two, the two trees represented two men, Zerubbabel, who was an heir of King David, and the priest, Joshua. And the two of them were leading the effort to rebuild the temple. And God said, look, success will not come if it depends only on political maneuvering. It will only come if you depend on the work of my spirit among you. This is the chapter where we get that famous line, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. For John, the two lampstands, the two olive trees, the two witnesses are a picture of the church under pressure in the world, but full of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, burning brightly with the fire of God to illuminate the darkness. It is a picture of faithful witness to Jesus. Then we get a whole bunch of strange symbols, fire and drought, water that turns to blood, plagues. These are hyperlinks to Moses and Elijah, who though they were outnumbered, stood up to power and witnessed the defeat of Israel's enemies. The beast, which we will meet again in chapter 13, is a reminder that the real enemy is not human beings but the powers and principalities of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. John's beast overcomes and kills the witnesses and leaves their bodies exposed in the public square where people gloat over them. This, of course, is what happened to Jesus. Jesus' death was a public spectacle. Next, John compares Rome to Sodom and Egypt. Sodom, the city of immorality and corruption. Egypt, the place of violence and oppression. So the two witnesses are dead and their bodies are lying in the streets of the great city, but their death is short-lived. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God enters them and they stand to their feet. This is a hyperlink to Ezekiel 37. When God promises to breathe new life into his children who have suffered the humiliation of exile. Keep in mind the two witnesses represent the church, not individuals. God is promising to revive his church. You with me? A little bit, all right. Finally, John writes about a great earthquake and one-tenth of the population dies. But believe it or not, this is a symbol of mercy. Remember, the numbers in Revelation are not statistics, they're symbols. Why is this a symbol of mercy? Because throughout Scripture in Isaiah, 
Amos, 1 Kings, there are scenes of judgment in which nine-tenths of the population dies and only one-tenth is saved. But here the ratio is reversed. Here only one-tenth dies and nine-tenths are saved. Why the reversal? What happens? The faithful witnesses are murdered, but because of the way they die, nine-tenths of the great city is redeemed. Let's pan back. What is John's message? What is he trying to convey to the churches through these strange symbols and images and hyperlinks? In the crunch between kingdoms, the church is called to be a faithful witness to Jesus. But more than that, John is saying that the nations of the earth will be drawn to Jesus because his followers are willing to suffer and die if it comes to that. A faithful witness is someone who proclaims the truth about Jesus and his kingdom, walks faithfully in the way of Jesus, and is willing to suffer for resisting the kingdoms of this world. How do we know what a faithful witness looks like? From Jesus. John calls Jesus the faithful witness back in chapter 1. Jesus told the truth about his Father and about the kingdom of heaven, which was breaking in on the world through him. Jesus did only what the Father told him to do. Jesus did everything right. His actions were always motivated by love. And he was rejected, tortured, and crucified. He told his followers, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. In other words, be prepared to experience rejection, suffering, and even death. Jesus wasn't being hyperbolic. He was preparing his friends for what would actually happen to them because they too suffered. They too were martyred. Ten of them were killed because of their witness. Only John lives out his days naturally, but of course, he was exiled to Patmos. The message of Revelation 11 is that the nations will be drawn to Jesus because his followers love him more than their own lives and are willing to suffer for him if it comes to that. That is the message of Revelation 11. Friends, history has proven this to be true over and over again. Persecution almost always goes, goes hand in hand with explosive church growth. This was true in ancient Rome. It is true today. Guess where Christianity is growing the fastest in the world today? Anybody know? In Iran. In Iran. The church is growing the fastest in Iran. Do you know what's happening to Christians in Iran? They're being persecuted by government authorities who use a network, an elaborate network of informants. In addition to that, family, friends, and community members also persecute Christians. You know, for much of the 20th century and into the 21st, pastors in China traveled from town to town by foot or by bicycle, carrying fragments of Scripture under their hats and in their shoes. Because anyone caught carrying Scripture could be tortured or imprisoned, and many were. 
And meanwhile, the underground house church movement was growing by an average of 10,000 people a day, year after year, for decades. This is still happening. You know where else Christianity is exploding? Mongolia, Cambodia, Bahrain, and all up and down the Arabic Peninsula. These are not safe places to follow Jesus. Why does this happen? Why does faithful witness unto death lead to the salvation of the nations? Jesus gives us a clue in two of his parables. He says the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, in his joy, he sold all he had so that he could buy that field. Likewise, the kingdom of God is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had so that he could buy it. How good must Jesus be if you would rather have him than everything else in your life? How good must Jesus be if you would be willing to lay down your life for him? That kind of devotion turns heads. It changes hearts and minds. The turning point in the civil rights movement, some of you were alive. Turning point in the civil rights movement took place on March 7, 1965 when a 25-year-old activist named John Lewis led over 600 marchers into Selma, Alabama. And when they arrived, they were brutally attacked by oncoming state troopers, but they did not fight back. Why not? Because Dr. King said, we will absorb suffering, but we will not inflict it. Because that is the way of Jesus. Television footage of the violence enacted upon peaceful protesters shocked the nation and galvanized the fight against racial injustice. When the plague swept across Europe, killing one-third of the population, nearly everyone fled the cities. They left for the country where they could spread out, where they would be less contagion. And they often left behind loved ones who were sick and dying. And only the Christians stayed in the cities, risking their lives to care for the sick, to nurse them back to hell. And many of them died. But many of the survivors began following Jesus because the self-giving love of his followers had literally saved them. This transformed Europe in a way Constantine never could. There's something incredibly attractive about someone who's not afraid of death, who actually believes that the resurrection is true, who has tasted and seen the Lord's goodness and knows that it is better than life. Years ago, I had a friend in New Hampshire named Laura. She never really thought about God until she was in her 50s, and she met a woman who was dying of cancer. And despite the pain and weakness that her friend experienced every day, and the death sentence that hung over her head, Laura shared with me that she had never met someone who radiated such peace and hope and who moved through life with so much selfless love and joy. Laura said, I had to understand what was behind that. And her friend began to tell her about Jesus, and Laura began following him.
Some of you were in Romania and the Ukraine this summer, and you met Mike Cantrell and Dave McGuire, who to this day continue to risk their lives weekly by crossing into war zones or into Russia to fulfill God's call on their lives to preach the gospel and to care for the oppressed. And the nations are coming to Jesus because of their willingness to risk their lives to help strangers. People are drawn to Jesus when his followers are willing to lay down their lives for him and his kingdom because Jesus is better than life. It is almost impossible to ignore a witness like that. Well, what does this mean for us? Because we don't live in Iran or China or Bahrain. The stakes just aren't as high. So what might it look like for us to be faithful witnesses in our Babylon? In John's vision, the two witnesses are wearing sackcloth. And this is really one of the keys to the passage. Sackcloth is a Jewish symbol for prophecy and repentance. Faithful witnesses are both prophetic and repentant. Prophets testify to the truth. They speak up for what's right. They confront those who abuse power. They prick the consciences of the world. It is difficult and dangerous to speak the truth. Prophets have a high mortality rate. It takes courage to be a prophet, to confront the status quo, and to expose the false gods of our age. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Yet often the church desperately wants to be loved by the world. And it becomes enmeshed in Babylon and its ways. Throughout my life, I've watched the church in the United States become increasingly politicized. Evangelicalism in particular, the part of the church that raised me and taught me to follow Jesus, the part of the church that I am deeply indebted to, has come to be more politically defined than theologically defined. In many places, we've allowed Christianity to be co-opted by politicians who promise power and influence and protection in exchange for our loyalty. But the result is a faith corrupted by power and human ways of thinking. In recent years, we've witnessed the rise of Christian nationalism, an attempt to blur the distinction between Christian identity and American identity. It's Christianity co-opted by the lust for ethno-nationalistic power. And it is antithetical to the gospel. Because Jesus came to reconcile people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And because he told his followers, the Gentiles lord their power over others, but not so with you. Faithful witnesses do not put their hope in politicians, in legislation, or judicial rulings. It is not that these things are unimportant. They they are important. It's just that they are not ultimate. We put our hope in the Lamb who was slain. The church does not need political power in order to flourish. In fact, history shows that the church is often at its best when it has no power whatsoever. 
We are, after all, strangers and exiles in this world. The church in America has compromised its witness by insinuating itself into government and forming unholy political allegiances. Hardly a week goes by when I don't hear someone talking about the role that the church's political captivity has played in alienating people from Jesus. Often they're talking about their own children and grandchildren. Faithful witnesses do not clamor for political or cultural power. They are prophetic. They speak truth to power. They confront the gods of this age, even when they colonize in the church. They point people to a kingdom that is not of this world and to a king who does not need a majority in Congress or on the Supreme Court to bring about his gracious rule. Faithful witnesses are also repentant. This means that if we follow Jesus, we ought to have a regular habit of confessing and turning from our sin. Why? Well, this is the kind of witness the world needs. A witness born of a contrite heart. We witness best to God's kingdom when we witness from a place of brokenness over our own sin. Repentance humbles and chastens us because it teaches us to see ourselves in the light of God's holiness and perfection. It reminds us that we depend daily on his mercy and grace. And as we do, we become the kind of people who are quick to listen, quick to admit when we're wrong, quick to forgive, slow to find fault. Yesterday, many of us gathered for David Hulley's memorial service, and multiple stories were told of David going to people in his life and saying, did I wrong you? Could I, have, could I have been more gentle toward you? Could I have been more loving toward you? He was a man who had cultivated the habit of repentance, who had become soft and chastened, who could approach people with humility. A few weeks ago, we talked about the great de-churching, how 40 million Americans have walked away from the church over the past 20, 25 years or so. Leading the way are younger generations, half of whom have already left the church. A recent study conducted by Ryan Burge and others sought to understand why so many young people are leaving the church. And their findings were sobering. The vast majority of young people who are leaving the church are doing so not because they've soured on Jesus, or because they bought into secular philosophies. The vast majority of kids who grew up in the church and are leaving are doing so primarily for four reasons, according to the research. Number one, they're sick of Christians fighting culture wars. They're sick of the anger and animosity and the us versus them posture. Number two, this is related, the Christian adults in their lives do not show kindness, love, and compassion, especially to those outside the church. Number three, they don't feel listened to by their own parents who often dismiss their questions and doubts. And number four, the Christian adults they know have troubling views about race and ethnic minorities. 
Does this break your heart? It should. It doesn't bring me any joy to share it. It is what it is. But it is evidence that the church has become too much like the world. Too much, too enmeshed with Babylon. And what is needed is deep repentance. Every revival, every great movement of God in history comes by way of repentance. If people, it comes when people get down on their knees and turn from their idols and fix their eyes on Jesus. The nations are drawn to Jesus by the faithful witness of his followers unto suffering and death if it comes to that. People are drawn to Jesus by the courage and humility of those who are so smitten with Jesus that they will do anything to bring joy to his heart. Faithful witnesses don't stand on their rights. They stand with the marginalized and fight for those without a voice. Faithful witnesses never lose track of the fact that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. We are free to participate in the political process, and we should, but not as those whose hope or despair depends on the outcome of an election. Faithful witnesses cultivate a habit of repenting. We never lose track of our own sinfulness. We never stop depending on God's mercy and grace. And this habit softens us, makes us more approachable, less apt to find fault, criticize, or condemn others. It keeps our witness joyful because we never quite get over the fact that God loves us and wants to be in relationship with us. It teaches us the hope that if we can be redeemed, man, anyone can. Anyone can become part of the new creation. Faithful witnesses are not utilitarian. They do not bother to calculate whether or not a specific course of action will result in pleasure or pain for themselves. They just do what's right. They just do what honors Jesus. They just do whatever love demands, come what may. If doing the right thing gets them mocked or excluded, so be it. If doing the right thing cuts into their lifestyle or their free time, so be it. If doing the right thing causes them to get so close to someone else's poverty or pain that they begin to feel it themselves, so be it. That is the way of Jesus. One of the messages of Revelation is that things are not always as they seem. Jesus won when it appeared he had been defeated. Jesus won when it appeared evil was in control. Jesus overcomes the enemy by letting the enemy overcome him. He did not back off even as death pursued him. And because he did not back off, but remained faithful to his father, Jesus broke death. Jesus wins by losing. And so do we. The reformer Martin Luther talked about the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. The theology of glory imagines a life in which following Jesus means our life is always moving up and to the right. Your best life now. Following Jesus should mean more power and popularity and affluence and comfort. The church should always have home field advantage in the culture. Whereas a theology of the cross says, we'll get all that eventually. 
But first we follow Jesus all the way to the cross. We lay down our lives in service to others. We disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage others. And if it comes to it, we suffer for doing good. We suffer for putting Jesus first. We win by losing. We win the world by losing. This is the wisdom of the cross. The way of the cross is costly and difficult, but it is beautiful. It is the beauty that saves the world.